So our text this morning, I'm going to have you in two different places. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 first, because that's kind of where we're rooted. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 12. Here we're diving into a deeper text, a harder text. Not one that I really want to preach on this morning, but we're just going through what Ephesians is calling us to go through. Uh, and this is the topic this morning. Ephesians chapter, uh, actually 5. Look at what it says in verse uh, 1 through uh, uh, 5 with me. It says this, Paul writes this, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12, is really where we're going to be landing this morning, so you can kind of let your place go in Ephesians. And listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. It says this, All things are lawful for me, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both at one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So then I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Well, the Southern Baptist Conference, the speaker who got up was an advocate for uh, sex, uh, sexual abuse. And as he began to speak at this conference, he began to speak uh, about somebody who was sexually abused and how they were mistreated by the Southern Baptist churches. And imagine what, what the Southern Baptist leaders hearing this would do. You would think they would weep. You, you would think they would be shocked. You, you would think they would want to repent about the abuse they, they helped kind of create and do everything in their ability to change it. But sadly, that is not what took place. In fact, the president of the Southern Baptist entity at this time, he, he went up to the man who was in charge of this conference, and he said, how could you ever allow this person to get up there and speak on this topic? He says, if people hear this, they're not going to give, and if they're not going to give, it's going to hurt our missionaries out there. 
In other words, what he's saying is we need to cover up sin so that we can secure our offering. And hearing this take place, it's shocking. It's shocking that any Christian leader would ever say, let's cover up sin rather than bringing it to light. It almost brings this righteous anger. In fact, it only gets worse. Just last year, Guidestone kind of investigated the Southern Baptist Convention, and if you're aware, you understand they came out with this report, reporting that over 380 different Southern Baptist pastors and leaders and volunteers sexually abused other individuals. 700 people who were victims to the Southern Baptist Convention leaders' abuse. I remember the first time hearing that news in which you literally shake with anger. How could, how could Christian leaders do such a thing? Upon hearing this news, it brings all sorts of emotions. How do we handle this news? What do we do about this news? If this is just one convention and it's only really the leaders that we're talking about, how much more prevalent is sexual abuse among God's church? Yes, we, we have a problem when it comes to sexual sin, even in Christ's church. And what gets me most about this story is, is this story just came out last year and many of us are probably unaware of it. You would think this would be headlines. you think it would be posted across every news channel, but in many ways it wasn't, and maybe it's because we became so accustomed to it. So accustomed now to sexual abuse from our leaders that it doesn't even bring shock or, or a sense of longing to lament over it. And it has become normal. You just look at the names of those who have fallen into sexual sin amongst even the evangelical church. From Rabbi Zacharias, to Ted Haggard, to Jerry Falwell Jr., to Bill Heibel, to Tulin Tavikian, to Carl Lentz, the list goes on and on and on. It has become the new normal, when in reality it should be anything but normal. So the problem with the church when it comes to sexual sin is we're drifting into the same waters that our culture is. We're not countercultural anymore, but we're just mimicking what the culture has told us. And the sad part about the, the first century church is they, they had the same problem. They weren't countercultural, but they were just doing what the culture did at the time. You know anything about Corinth? You understand that this was a pretty immoral city. It is said at one time in, in Corinth they had over 1,000 different prostitutes. Meaning that if you're walking the streets of Rome in Corinth, that, that you would actually literally be seen one out of every 30 people in Corinth at the time was a prostitute. And I get it, that was a little bit before Paul's time, but the same thing was taking place in Paul's time. In which a boy would come of age, in which at his banquet, his coming of age banquet, there literally would be many prostitutes available to him. In, in Roman culture, sexual sin was very normal. 
This culture was prevalent with adulterous relationships, men sleeping with slave girls, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters at the local temple. Homosexuality was the norm. In fact, homosexuality was so prevalent within Roman culture that the first 15 of the, of, of, or rather the first 14 of the 15 emperors actually practiced in homosexual activity. Sexual immorality within this culture was rampant. And yet we see the problem. Here was a church, instead of allowing the scriptures to speak into their lives, they were allowing the culture to speak into their lives more than the scriptures itself. In fact, we see it very much in this passage. You just begin to read and you begin to see the cultural influences and all the excuses this church was actually coming up with to say that sexual sin was okay. In fact, we see it right away in verse 12. Read verse 12 through 14 with me again. And notice what they're saying because it's a back and forth. Paul is simply just repeating what the culture is saying and then he corrects it with some good theology. He says, you say all things are lawful for me, but I say not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And, and you say God will destroy both and one and the other. But I say the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Again, what Paul is doing here is he's simply just repeating what the Corinthian church was saying to them. Their excuses of why they were saying they could participate in sexual sin and it would be okay. And Paul here now is refuting it with what he says or what the scriptures say. So it's this back and forth. But what we should be caught up with is not only the fact that many of their kind of justifications for their sin are coming from the culture at large, but what we should see is how ridiculous some of these excuses are. Which again should bring us great warning that our sinful hearts have the ability to justify any sin. Here they are justifying it, making excuses, and they're pretty much, a lot of them are ridiculous. In fact, one of the ways they excuse it is actually saying the gospel excuses it itself. They're saying the gospel, because the gospel came, got rid of the law, so therefore we have no law, so therefore we should be able to do as we see fit. All things are, are, are helpful, or all things are beneficial, they would say. As one commentator said, that they're really singing the cultural song of this, free from the law, oh happy a condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. In other words, they're saying the gospel set us free. To free, to do as we see fit. But Paul's response by saying, yet yes, you say all things are lawful, but I say not all things are helpful. And you say all things are lawful, but I say I will not be enslaved by anything. And it's very quickly he shuts down their idea that yes, the gospel sets us free, but free to do what? To bring God glory in everything we do. And yet how often we see even in our own culture the justification of using God as an excuse for our sexual sin. When one person saying, well, 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 why would God be upset? He's given me these inclinations. Doesn't he want me to be happy? So therefore, if he wants me to find my greatest happiness, then cheating on my wife is okay and the divorce is okay. On top of that, he wants me to be happy, right? Ever heard that excuse? God wants us to be happy, so we should be able to do and see as we see fit. Other people say, 
I have an argument of saying, well, I'm going to move in with my girlfriend because I'm going to be able to save money. And if I'm able to save money because we don't have two rents now, I'll be able to tithe more. Using it as a sense of God as saying, here, well, I'll be able to sin in this area and be able to give in this area. It doesn't make, doesn't make sense. But again, it shows us the ability to justify any sin. If we see next, not only are they trying to excuse their sin but the gospel, but again, they use this idea of, of inclinations. Our, our own bodily inclinations should be allow us to be able to pursue those inclinations. Look at what it says in verse 16. Food is meant for the body and the body for food. And God will destroy them both. This is the line of reasoning they were using. In other words, they're saying the body's for food. There's this natural inclination. I got one to eat, so I eat. And they were using it in the same sense when it came to sexual sin. I have these impulses and desires, so therefore, I should be able to pursue them as such. If God gave me these inclinations to, to want these things, they must be good then. And we say the same excuses in our own culture, in which people say that, then why would God be upset if He gave me this inclination to look and be happy as I look at pornography? Then it must not be wrong. Other people saying, those living in the homosexual lifestyle, am I not born this way with this inclination? I'm born with these desires, so therefore they should be right and good and true. And what they're really getting down to is this cultural idea that says, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire the most. You have this inclination. Go pursue it. And yes, these arguments might sound good to you on face value, but what do they forget? They forget the fall. That because of the fall, because of sin, because of Adam's fall, we all are now born with this sinful inclinations. Each and every single one of us. We're all born inclined to sin. In fact, this was Paul would say in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. Talking about how, how, how are we living? How are we born? He says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is how we all lived. In other words, each and every person in this room was born with a distorted view of sexual ethics, sexuality, and our desires in life. And God doesn't say just pursue them. Because if we were all going to pursue our, every sexual inclination we, we had, we would be in very bad shape. But Paul says in chapter 4, verse 22 of Ephesians, the very text we got this series from, that you should put off your old self, catch it, which belongs to your former manner of life, and catch it, is corrupt through deceitful desires. All of us were born with sinful inclinations. Each and every person there is. But he says, I need you, I need you to die to your old manner of life, the way that you were born with all those sinful inclinations, and be born again to a new nature, a new way of pursuing things. That you're no longer serving your own sinful inclinations, but you're serving the King of Kings. We justify all sorts of sexual sin within our culture. And I think the problem is we see it so often that it's no longer shocking. 
It, it no longer even kind of gets across the grain to us. It's become the new normal. And because we've seen it so often, it's become the new normal. Now we just justify it as right and good and true. But in all reality, it's going against the very word of God. So we have to be careful here. Not to allow our sinful inclinations or the culture to speak louder than the Bible itself. And again, I think the problem is, is, is has how many of us kind of view the Scriptures is we look at the Scriptures through a cultural lens. So we begin to interpret the Scriptures off of the culture or what we think is normal. But rather what we need to do is exchange that. I'm not looking at the culture and making that my lens of interpretation to the Scriptures, but now I exchange it to see the Bible becomes my lens and I interpret the culture off of God's Word itself. That I begin to look at things through a biblical perspective and allow the Bible to be the lens in which I see all things. And yes, I begin to use the scriptures to say, what does the scripture say and what's the implications? The scriptures say this, what's the implications when it comes to my sexual ethic? We need to be able to think biblically about all things. And as I begin to use the scriptures as a lens by which I look at the culture at large, it is going to transform so many things in our lives. You do just that, and it begins to correct your sexual ethic. But here's Paul. He's writing to his church. They begin to say all these different things, their excuses. First, they said, well, the gospel allows us to do this because it gets rid of the law. Secondly, they say, this is our body impulses. Nextly, again, they use this other excuse, saying, well, God is going to destroy both, so it shouldn't matter what I do with the body. If he's going to destroy the body, what I do with the body shouldn't matter in the second half. And what they're using is what we would call platonic dualism. It's the idea of Plato and how we have the spirit and the body kind of separate from each other. So therefore, what the body does really doesn't affect the spirit. So therefore, I can participate in sexual sin, and God won't care because at the end, he's going to destroy it. But notice how Paul refutes that argument. He refutes it very quickly with correct theology. And he says in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what is it for? It's meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 14 is how he corrects this Platonic dualism. He says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up you by his power. In essence, he's saying the body matters. Why does the body matter? Because the body will be resurrected with you in your resurrected body. It's not going to be destroyed. It's going to be resurrected. And God cares so much for the body that he sent his son to die for it. So your body is matter. From a biblical standpoint, yes, our bodies are designed to what? To bring God glory. You've been bought at a price. So therefore, what you do for the body matters. That's why Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do with your body, do so for the glory of God. And imagine if we just went about our days saying, what is going to bring God glory? The sexual sin? No. I'm going to pursue Him in His holiness instead. So for the, for, for the remainder of our time, what I want us to do is I want us to, to correct and have a good sexual ethic, a good theology when it comes to sex, and I want to do so from a biblical standpoint. 
that if we have a good theology of marriage, which then will lead us into a good sexual ethic. And I think this is what Paul's doing, he just does it in reverse. So the first thing I do, I only have two points with you, I know three good pastors have three points. I got two for you this morning, the first one is this, God has created sexual relations to be experienced only within a marriage relationship. And that is when it's experienced in its greatest joy. Sexual relations to be experienced only within the marriage relationship, and that is written experience in its greatest joy. Notice how Paul states this in the negative in verse 15 to 16. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So then shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that the one uh, that he who is joined to is a prostitute becomes one body with her? Catch it, for it is as written. Two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Paul's argument is pretty easy to understand. I think all of us would say that yes, when we become a believer, we're connected to Christ through faith. His argument is simple. You who is connected to Christ, should you be then connecting Christ to something as unholy as a prostitute? And we would say... Network. The question that we ask is does Paul's argument hold, hold still when we supplement prostitute with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Does his argument still hold true that we should not connect Christ with, with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Or, or just a casual person? And I want to suggest to you it does hold up. Why? Because Paul grounds his argument in Genesis chapter 2. He takes us back in Genesis chapter 2 to the theology of marriage, that two shall become one flesh. And we've got to understand how countercultural this is at first for us to understand what this actually means to us. In fact, Pew Research just did a, 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 just did a kind of a survey, pretty recent, and they're surveying Christians, people who claim to follow Christ, and they ask them the question, is sexual relationship between two consenting adults who are not committed in relationship okay? 50% of them said, yes, it's okay. Then they say, ask the same question, sexual relationship, sexual relations within a committed relationship, even though they're not married, okay, that number jumps up to 57%. Christians are saying it's okay to sleep around, and I really think the reason why is because we have a bad theology of marriage which then affects our sexual ethic. I think why we think we can sleep with a boyfriend or girlfriend is because we forgot what marriage is and therefore we don't know what sex is. So this morning I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 2. This is what Paul is doing. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And if you remember correctly from Genesis chapter 2, he brings us back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's relationship in the garden. And how they're married and what that means and what is marriage all about. We see it in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus is actually quoted from Genesis chapter 2. And listen to what Jesus says, quoting from Genesis chapter 2. He says this, Speaking of marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And catch it, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. 
What Jesus is getting at is the profound mystery of marriage. And listen to that verse, you almost think maybe Jesus' math is wrong. I've performed or officiated many weddings. And my favorite part is talking about this aspect of what God supernaturally does in, on that wedding day. He takes two individuals, two entities who are separate, who are different. They have different backgrounds. They have different ways of thinking about things. They have different upbringings, different influences. And he takes these two individuals and he joins them together to make not, not two different entities in marriage, but he makes them one flesh. It's one husband and one wife doesn't equal two, but in God's eyes it equals one. So much so that now he looks at this marriage couple in, as, as one, not separate, but one entity. And notice who brings them together. They don't bring themselves together, but it's God who brings them together. God is the one who takes a husband and a wife and he, and he joins them together and he does this miraculous act in which he creates them to be one. One in spirit, one in purpose, one in heart, and one in love. So the question we ask, he brings them together and then he says this, let no man separate. And the question we ask is why? Why does God say let no man separate? Because when it comes to marriage, he tells in Ephesians 5 that it stands for something so much greater and so much more beautiful than just two entities living together, but it stands for the gospel. In fact, you look from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation, and what do you see? You see God talking about His people in marital terms. He's talking about His church, how He's united together in covenant with them, and He's faithful to them, and when they sway, it's, it's like them leading to an adulterous different person, but yet He pursues them and woos them back. We see in Revelation at the very end this, this, this great marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 21, when the church comes back to Christ, what does he say? This is my bride performed for the husband. So throughout it, we see the scriptures always talking and using this illustration of marriage to describe a greater reality of the gospel. And that's profound. Which means that through my marriage, I have an ability to understand and see the gospel in different ways than I would if I wasn't married. And I can look at marriage and see and understand the gospel, God's faithful covenant of love to His church in ways that I wouldn't have if I'm not looking to marriage. Which means when a husband loves his wife, because Christ loves the church, you should be able to see Christ's love for the church. And a woman, when she responds in submission, to her husband's humble and Christ-like leadership as he's willing to die for himself for the sake of his wife. We should be able to see the gospel as the church submits to the Lordship of Christ. So yes, when we see these things, when we look at a, a good, healthy, biblical marriage, it should point to the beauty of the gospel as Christ unites himself to become one member with the church. Do you see his language he uses even in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6? That you and I become members with Christ. We're united to become not two, but now one. 
And he says, this is, this is what marriage is all about. It points to a greater reality. Which is why divorce is so serious. Because it not only separates what God joined together, but it distorts the gospel message. It doesn't show a picture of a God who loves his church un, uh, uh, unconditionally and faithfully, but it, it distorts that picture. He says, I need you to understand what God joins together, let no man separate. So that when you're able to see a husband and a wife with one purpose and one love unified together, it should show you a picture of the great news of the gospel. Question now we ask is, well, what does sexual ethic have to do with marriage? Catch it. If, if marriage is God bringing two individuals together to form one new body, one new flesh, then, then sex now becomes the physical act to remind us of a spiritual reality. That, that every time we partake in the marriage bed, we're reminding ourselves of what God joined together in covenant. His supernatural act to make two individuals now become one flesh, and we get to experience that physically in the marriage bed. See, God likes to remind us of covenant relationships. We see that throughout the scriptures. He reminds his people of, of his faithfulness to, to the nation of Israel as they participate and partake in, 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 in the meal. And, and we see that even with baptism, we see it with communion. They're not the same. I'm not saying they're the same, but I'm seeing in a very similar fashion, God has given us a, a, a reminder, a physical reminder to remind us of the covenant we have with our spouse. That God is the one who joined us together, supernatural act to spiritually make us one. We get to experience that in the marriage bed we physically become one. Now this only allows sexual relationships to take place within marriage. Because if I have sexual relationship with anybody else than my spouse, what am I doing? I'm becoming one flesh with somebody that God did not declare me to be one flesh with. It doesn't make sense. It breaks down the illustration. And if, if, if this, if this is why it becomes so important. Because if if this is the physical illustration of a spiritual reality, and this spiritual reality of us becoming one flesh with our husband or our wife, and that points to the gospel, when I mess up this part, everything else begins to fall as well. For this reason, he says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. He says that you, this is a special gift from God to remind you of the covenant that God performed in your marriage. So, so, so the sexual relationship becomes so much more than just a physical act. It becomes an emotional act. It becomes a, a worshipful act. It becomes a spiritual act. To be thankful what God has given us as He's the one who joined us together in union. So He says, flee. And what are we called to flee? Flee from sexual immorality. The Greek word there is pornea. It's kind of a kitchen sink kind of term to include all sorts of sexual sin. Pornea is where we get the English word pornography. So it includes pornography, includes 
sexual sin outside of marriage, it includes adultery, it includes homosexuality, it includes anything other than sexual relationship within a marriage. And what does he say? He says, flee. Why, did it become, why, why does it become so serious as we begin to see the second point this morning? For us to bring God glory in the realm of sexual ethics, it also means that I'm called to flee from sexual immorality in all areas of my life. And yet even in that word, we should see the dangers. He says flee from it. He doesn't say get close to it. He doesn't say flirt from it. He says run the other way. And we should expect Satan to try to tempt us in this area. Because if it's true that sexual relationships points to the oneness in marriage and the oneness in marriage points to the gospel, would it not be an advantage for Satan to attack us in this area? Because he, if he distorts one, he distorts the rest. And what do we see him do? Before we're married, he tries to make us one when God didn't declare us one. After we get married, what does he try to do? He tries to separate us so that we wouldn't feel this, this oneness in marriage. He's trying to attack us in this area and give us a distorted view of, of sexual relationships. So what's the answer to, to being able to flee? I'm going to give you three quick points as we close. How, how do we flee from sexual immorality? First thing, this idea is we must fear. We must have a healthy fear of sexual sin. To the wisdom of God, it all begins with the fear of God, but we also be, understand that, that when we... We, we see him say that, that, that all of a sin, a man sins outside his body, but this one's different. Sins within his body, his own body. And what he's really saying there is this sin, it, 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 there's a, a difference to it. There's a gravity of weight. And I can tell you stories of me being counseling and seeing there's not one person who's happy after committing sexual sin. The destruction it causes upon the family. Destruction it causes within the marriage. Destruction causes upon that one individual and the person they sinned against or sinned with. Causes destruction all around. I can tell you stories of watching just the, the after effect of the children within the marriage. Children literally punching walls of their anger of seeing their, their father's unfaithfulness. And I can tell you that the pleasure that we might think we're obtaining from sexual sin is never worth it. So first of all, just say, have a healthy fear of what this leads to. It leads to devastation of a reputation. It leads to the, the lack of trust that your family can have in you. First fear, secondly, discipline. What does it mean to flee? means to run away again, to take drastic measures. But Jesus says, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, take it out. What is he getting at? He's getting at this idea of taking drastic measures to make sure that we don't fall into sexual immorality. So what does that look like for you? Maybe that looks like you having accountability kind of software, whether it's on your computer or on your phone. Having open ways for your spouse to be able to look at your email or look at your social media. Take drastic measures for the, for the reputation of your family. He says, go to drastic measures so that you can look at your children in the eyes and say, yes, I was faithful in this area. Because the opposite is, is devastating. So what measures are you willing to take? 
I want to suggest to you that there shouldn't be, all of us should be able to be willing to have accountability software on our devices. The prevalence with this sin is so, today is it's because it's so available to us. It's going to be a sin of secrecy because I can take my, 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 my phone and my computer and I can look at things I shouldn't be looking at or I can have communication now with past relationships, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or other social media devices. And what we need to do is hold ourselves accountable. So first, fear, second, discipline, and lastly, pursuit. The question we ask if we're fleeing from sexual immorality, what should be the opposite of what we should be doing? We should be fleeing from sexuality and rather pursuing Jesus. Pursue Jesus. See, when my eyes are on Jesus, my eyes cannot prone to wander. So pursue Jesus. Get close to Jesus. I'm even reminded of Paul's words in Timothy, in which he says the soldier isn't distracted by the things of the civilian. Why? Because he's wanting to please the one who he's enlisted in. And the same thing for us. When I have a purpose and a mission to bring God glory, and when I am consumed with His kingdom, my own kingdom begins to fall. Do you have a purpose? Are you pursuing Jesus with every aspect of your life? Are you caught up in the words of Psalm 63? Do you believe that His love is better than life itself? Are you pursuing Jesus? We want to be people who, as difficult as it might be, say, I'm going to look at everything through a biblical, biblical perspective so that I can have a good theology when it comes to not only marriage, but a sexual ethic as well. That God has given us a gift. He's given us the gift to use in a certain way, and when we, we abuse that gift, that's when the harm and the pain comes. This morning, we ask the question, are you striving after the likeness of God when it comes to a sexual ethic? Let's pray. God, we come before you, we We do ask that you would do a mighty work this morning. And even in a room this size, we understand the stories. The stories from the past, the hurt and pain that we might have had to endure because of somebody else's sexual abuse or sexual sin. I'm going to pray that you would comfort those who are experiencing the pain and, and, and the heartache from somebody else's sin in their life. Never room the size, I understand there's also stories of, of those who, who are stuck in temptation presently. And yes, they want to pursue you, but they don't know how to get out of that. God, I pray today would be the day that they would seek somebody out. That they would come alongside those within this body who wants to help them and release them from the sin that so easily entangles. God, today I pray for those who would be willing to get accountability software for their devices so they, they would have one extra level of protection. And most of all, God, give us a heart to pursue you in all things. God, we need you. God, reminded of your grace and your forgiveness even in this 
that you are the God who makes us white as snow and those who we might have a past. And we simply repent and turn to you. We, we receive the good news that you forgive us of all our unrighteousness. So therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God, let us be a church that pursues you in all things. Let us be a church that wants to strive after holiness because we want other people to see the goodness of who you are. Forgive the church for failing in this area for way too long. God, would you purify your church, protect your leaders, for your name's sake and your glory. Help us in this area to cry out and cry out and cry out. Help us. Be with your church and grace in your precious name.